Hi, my name's Tim. I'm from the 6pm service, and today's Bible reading will be from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hi everyone, my name's Ken. Uh, it's great to have the opportunity to uh, look at God's Word, to be thinking about prayer uh, in our current series, Exalt. So let me pray for us as we start our time uh, thinking about these things. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity you've given us uh, to be able to come before you and speak with you. Uh, thank you that you tell us that this is the right thing to do. And so we ask you now for wisdom. We ask that you would... Help us not only to understand what you're saying to us, but that you would enable us to put it into practice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anna and the King is a modern remake of the very well-known movie, The King and I. Both are banned in Thailand, and having lived there, I appreciate the reason why. Whether intentional or not, they unfairly criticise the King and look down on the Thai people. But despite that, there is a scene in the movie that I think gives us some great insights into prayer. In a culture where respect for the monarchy is worship, King Mongkut is pictured seated high on a throne, while the nobles and even the wives of the king bow before him, giving physical expression to the belief that he is great, they are his servants. Our Western ideal of equality recoils from this requirement to, to lie face down before the king. But it's actually far less demanding than the, the Bible's claim that God deserves to be exalted above all, that he's worthy of everyone's honour and respect, that we can't approach him as our equal. But then later in this same scene with this sharp distinction between the king and everyone else clear, the, the king's favourite daughter, bursts into the throne room, ignores the important officials, pushes past some VIPs and runs straight to her dad. Now, whether or not that could have ever really happened, I don't know. But what it helpfully portrays is that when in need, the daughter of the king runs straight to speak with the one who has the power to fix things. There's no protocol, no fancy words or ceremonies required. She goes straight to her dad and asks him for help. 
I think is a great picture of the privilege that we have as children of the King of Kings. In the words of Hebrews 4.16, who can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's also a beautiful and very memorable picture demonstrating a tension that we need to consciously maintain that, that God is both awesome and approachable. The God that we approach in prayer is so much greater than us that in the Bible, this falling down on our faces before him is the right response. Think Isaiah 6 or Revelation chapter 4 verses 9 and 10, for example. Prayer should never be considered as merely a casual chat between mates. We must remember and uphold the holiness, the majesty, the worth, the, the otherness of the one to whom we speak when we pray. But at the same time, because we are children of this great God, prayer must never become formal words spoken to the impersonal sovereign over the universe, mindless chanting or magical manipulation. Those are not true prayer either. I think it's worth clarifying at the outset what we mean by this term prayer. Because in practice, we often distinguish between prayer and praise, with praise more obviously being worship. The root meaning of the English word prayer means requesting or asking for something. And it probably is the most common thing we do when we pray. But asking for something seems to focus on ourself rather than on God. Brother Lawrence, in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, helpfully insists that we should form a habit of conversing with God continually and referring all we do to him. I think it's best to conclude that all of our talking to God about him, about others, about ourselves, about anything at all is prayer, which means there are so many aspects of prayer that we could consider today. How frequently should we pray? What topics should we cover? What words should we use? Should our prayers be out loud or silent, eyes open or closed, in public or in secret, hands clasped together or raised towards heaven? But in a series specifically about worship, we're, we're going to restrict ourselves to the question that should by now be familiar. How does praying exalt God in our hearts and our hands? How does talking to God elevate him in the way that we think about him and, and honour him in what we do? It's an intentionally limited question and it, it won't deal with every aspect of prayer, but a very quick personal reflection as we begin. Reflecting on prayer, I've been super aware of my own shortcomings in this area and, and have noticed as I've prepared the almost universal recognition that we simply don't pray enough. Consider in comparison how much Jesus prayed. His brother James, who earned the nickname Camel Knees, so calloused were they from kneeling in prayer. Or George Mueller, who, who prayed about absolutely everything. Even well-known and respected authors like Don Carson and Jerry Bridges, when, when writing on prayer, expressed their disappointment that their practice is not what they would like it to be. There's a chance that like me and others, you're already bowing your head not to pray, but because you feel embarrassed knowing that you should pray more and yet we don't. But don't confuse guilt with conviction. Satan points out our wrongs so that we will shrink back from God. He accuses us that we're not worthy. You failed again. There's no way he's going to give you yet another chance. And it's a lie. The Holy Spirit, in contrast, convicts us. He lovingly points out the exact same failures and says that because of them, we need to turn back to God. And so if you're thinking that surely by this stage in my Christian life, I should be 
already more advanced at this whole praying thing, then take heart and let it motivate you to pray. Though the disciples would have all grown up praying, in the presence of Jesus, they recognise their need for help in knowing how to pray. And Jesus doesn't criticise or shake his head in disgust. Rather, he shows how our praying can exalt God in our hearts and our hands. The first answer is that prayer helps us by clarifying the truth about God and about us. So our first point, prayer exalts God in our hearts by clarifying the truth about God and us. What I mean is that prayer demonstrates and confirms the superiority of God. The late Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, concluded that the man who prays is the one who thinks that God has arranged matters all wrong, but who also thinks that he can instruct God how to put them right. He concluded that prayer was a claim to be God. But look again at the start of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are not magic words to start a prayer to ensure that we get what we want. Whenever we pray, there is or should be an underlying desire for God to be exalted. Prayer is at its heart submitted to a greater goal, that that God's name, that which expresses all that he is, is is hallowed or exalted, lifted up, recognised as great, that his kingdom is established, his will is done. We can't pray for these kind of things and, and then in the same breath correct God or put ourselves first. We can't ask for things contrary to what God determines is best. It's not my plans, my desires, what I think is best that is of utmost importance. Prayer is submitting ourselves to what God knows is best. Just like those who, who physically bow before the Thai king to recognise how much greater he is, to bow before God in prayer, whether physically or metaphorically, is to recognise how much greater God is than us. Expressing the opposite understanding to Hitchens, Robert Murray McShane, the famous Scottish pastor, wrote that what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Prayer is, in this sense, an inescapable test of our comprehension of the gospel. It's as we make the time to pray and and come to God, recognising his control, his perfection, his holiness, his, his grace to us, our own sinfulness, our inability, that's when we get the difference between God and ourselves right. Prayer is not placing ourselves above God. It's consciously and hopefully increasingly recognising how much greater, holier, loving, forgiving that God is than us. Left to ourselves, we're, we're like a musical instrument that quickly goes out of tune, a car that's constantly straying off course because it needs a wheel alignment. Prayer realigns us to the reality that God is great and we are sinful. And so I think there is some truth in the observation that what prayer changes most is the prayer. As we bring various things before God, whether a one-off or something we pray for a thousand times, it both reminds us and expresses the truth that we're not in control. Stopping to pray should make us consider that there are more important things in our comfort. It reminds us that often we can't comprehend the bigger picture of what God is doing. It can express a wonder that God does bring amazing good out of terrible bad. 
And to be guided in correct thinking on these issues is why so many people find praying the prayers found in the Bible so helpful. Rather than us coming up with what to pray for, prayers in the Bible give us words and topics to pray. Many people use the Psalms. Don Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, is an incredibly helpful reflection on the Apostle Paul's prayers as a model for our own. Others find the Book of Common Prayer or the Valley of Vision helpful. Sometimes the writers just word it more beautifully than I might. Other times it's their exploring of topics that we wouldn't naturally do on our own. But I think a caution is also needed. This may lead some to think that the only prayer that counts as worship is nicely worded prayers of adoration and thanksgiving. Again, I think the picture of the princess running to her father helps demonstrate why that isn't so. When the princess goes to her dad to ask for his help, it recognises that he is the only one who is capable of providing what she needs. If she could fix the problem herself, she wouldn't bother her dad. And likewise, when we pray, we acknowledge our dependence upon God, which introduces our second point. Prayer exalts God in our hearts and our hands by recognising our dependence upon God. While praying is acknowledging that God and his plans are the most important, that doesn't mean that we therefore pre- uh, just passively accept that whatever will be, will be. God already knows what is best, and so logic may suggest that, that we just wait for him to do it. But God has told us to pray to him about everything. God's control of all things is not an excuse for our prayerlessness. Prayer is bringing things to God for the very reason that he is in control of everything, that he alone is the one who can fix things. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 says, Give us today our daily bread. To ask for daily bread is clearly not informing God of of a need that he doesn't know about. Rather, prayer acknowledges that I'm not the breadwinner. God is the bread provider. Now, this is not to say that we are merely passive recipients waiting for, for God to dump all of his blessings upon us. More often than not, we are still required to do something to, to receive God's gift. Our prayer is not let go and let God. It's God enable me to do my part. Even the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness and, and God provided the manna for them, still had to go out and collect it as instructed. And while the request in Jesus' model prayer is is stated in terms of uh, essential food, the application surely applies to every part of our lives. It is right and appropriate to to bring all of our concerns to God, our health, our studies, our work, our relationships, our finances, our future. While to ask God to help us find a parking spot or our misplaced keys may sound trivial, and if that is the only things we ever pray for, it probably is best taken as a warning sign. Yet Jesus' prayer tells us that our everyday essentials are the right thing to pray for. In practice, many of us think that we can look after the little things and and we'll ask God to manage the things we can't. But as has been stated a number of times in this series, there's no sacred secular divide, no distinction between big important spiritual matters and, and more practical things that are up to us. God is exalted when we acknowledge, as King David did in prayer, Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Notice also Jesus' further description. It's daily bread. 
the classic saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime suggests that self-reliance is the highest goal in life. Our society insists that the person who lives hand to mouth or who lives pay to pay hasn't got it together yet. But we need to be careful that the fierce independence that we value so much in the West doesn't replace our moment-by-moment dependence upon God. When Christy and I first went to Thailand, it was, it was a big step to leave our paid careers and trust God to provide financially for us through his people. And yet he did, sometimes in extraordinary ways, often through the faithful regular giving of our church and friends. But having lived for many years like that, I think it's actually been harder to lean on God when I know that my pay is going to be deposited on a regular basis. It's so easy to wrongly conclude that most things depend on me and my efforts. Prayer is a practical way of regularly acknowledging that we're not in control. God is. That though God may use seemingly ordinary means, he is behind them all. Now, all we've looked at so far can help us to reflect on our attitude and our understanding. And while that is incredibly value, I want to suggest that we can't stop there. And so our third and final point, prayer exalts God in our actions because it demands us to forgive as we've been forgiven. Prayer exalts God in our actions because it demands us to forgive as we've been forgiven. In addition to daily bread, Jesus' prayer makes clear that forgiveness is our greatest need. And while prayer is us talking to God, asking for what we need, it must also lead to changes between us and others. Many of us try to emulate our heroes or those we are fans of. We dress like them, get haircuts like them, imitate the things they do and say. Imitation is, as they say, the sincerest form of flattery. And while I think flattery is probably the wrong word, paralleling this idea to exalt God means that his actions become the model, the the standard for our actions. And the one action of God given particular emphasis in this prayer is forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sin, your Father will not forgive your sin. I personally have found that these are the hardest verses of Jesus' prayer to pray honestly. I think I can pray with a genuine desire for God to be exalted. It's not hard at all for me to ask God for things. In in fact, it comes very naturally. But if God forgave me in the same way that I forgive others, as the second part of verse 12 states, I'd actually be in a lot of trouble. I want God to forgive me totally, unconditionally, to to treat me just as if I'd never sinned. I rejoice in the promise of Psalm 103 verse 12 that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then, just like the man in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, who, after being forgiven much, turns around and chases someone else for a minor debt, I find myself holding grudges, being bitter and resentful towards others. I want revenge against those who have hurt me. 
I'm much more likely to follow James and John's lead, asking Jesus if he wants me to call down fire to destroy the Samaritans than to follow Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But because God has forgiven me, I must forgive others. How different would our church be if this was the consistent outcome of the gospel, the tangible result of our frequent praying, that when I'm offended by what someone says or does to me, I remember that Jesus paid the price for my sin, and so I choose to forgive them. That forgiven by Jesus, we become people known for keeping short accounts rather than people who hold long grudges. Corey ten Boom, who fell into Nazi hands in World War II and miraculously survived, went around sharing her story after the war, encouraging others to trust in Jesus and receive the forgiveness that he won for us by the cross. One of the German guards who had mistreated her came up to her after one of these meetings. In the intervening time between the end of the war and this meeting, he'd become a Christian, rejoicing in the forgiveness that he had received from God. But after hearing her share, he also wanted to be forgiven by Corey. Everything within her screamed, I can't forgive him. His actions had been humiliating, terrifying, painful, and had even contributed directly to her own sister's death. And yet the Holy Spirit prompted her that she must forgive. That's what this passage and many others insist. Corey knew that in and of herself she couldn't do it, and yet, enabled by God, she did. Her willingness to forgive moved her to an even deeper experience of God's love and forgiveness. And thoroughly impressed by her, her example, knowing that forgiving others is for my own good, knowing that I'm commanded by God to do it, even then I still turn around and justify my lack of forgiveness towards someone who's hurt me in far smaller ways. When someone criticizes me or excludes me, when they disagree with me or say something that causes offence, I, I put a black mark through their name. I no longer interact with them as someone for whom I'm seeking their best. They're to be avoided, shunned, kept at a distance so they can't hurt me again. Now, I don't know the specifics of how you have been hurt by others. There's a very real possibility that some or even all of you have been abused in some way, physically, mentally, spiritually. You may have been hurt through absolutely no fault of your own. And as the victim, to be told to forgive the perpetrator may feel like I'm adding insult to injury. But I don't think that we can avoid Jesus' requirement here. Jesus doesn't permit any exceptions. He doesn't say, oh, oh, don't worry about forgiving that. That one's too hard. You're allowed to nurse resentment if the offence was that bad. There is simply no allowance for us to think that way. Jesus' requirement to forgive others is so serious that there is even a link between our salvation and the forgiving of others. If we read verse 15 without any context, we could conclude that our salvation is dependent upon our forgiving others. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that it means we're saved by grace plus our willingness to forgive. And without minimising the demand in any way, I think the better way to read it is that Forgiving others will inevitably be the outworking of being forgiven. If we have an unwillingness to forgive, it's another warning sign that we haven't actually comprehended the gospel. And so as you pray today and this week, 
if God brings to mind people with whom you have unfinished business, then the best thing we can do initially is to stay on our knees and ask for his forgiveness. Our unwillingness to forgive them is not a right, it's a sin. And when we've done the necessary, often incredibly difficult business with God, having forgiven them in our hearts, it may also require us to arrange to meet up with someone, to make a difficult phone call, or to write a letter expressing our forgiveness. It won't be easy, but how many good things in life are. Much later in her life, Corey Ten Boom recounted another incident in which she had to forgive some Christian friends who had hurt her. Though she had forgiven a Nazi guard, she found this even harder to do. She prayed, forgave, and yet she still felt uneasy. She wrote, God's help came in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Up in that church tower, he said, nodding out the window, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging, first ding, then dong, slower and slower, until there's a final dong and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. Perhaps you've got some old ding-dongs that are still reverberating. Perhaps you're holding onto a rope that you hadn't even realised you were repetitively pulling on. Perhaps you've actually been avoiding offering forgiveness to someone you know that God has been prompting you to forgive. Don't see it as merely an obligation. We've been given a unique opportunity by which we can exalt God. I can't count how many times I've prayed this prayer, how many sermons I've heard on it. Today, my prayer is that reflecting on it would change how we think of God, how we think of ourselves and how we respond to others, that it would helpfully connect God's awesomeness and his approachability, that it will lead us all to pray because God is greater than us, that we'll pray more frequently recognising that God alone can help, that our praying will lead us to forgive because God forgave us. Let's pray right now. Our Father who art in heaven, how incredible that we can use that title that we're your children. We have a privilege to be able to come to you. May your name be exalted, may it be hallowed, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long so much for you to be recognised for the great God that you are, for us to be part of your obedient people who are part of the establishment of your kingdom, seeing things done in the way that you've designed them to be. Father, give us today our daily bread. We recognise that you are our provider, the one who gives us absolutely everything that we need. And we bow before you again in humble dependence, knowing that only you can give us all of the things that we so desperately require. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We recognise that the incredible grace that you've poured, up, poured out upon us is, is not merely for us, but it's something that has to channel through us to others. And so we pray that as we reflect on you, 
uh, as we pray to you, that this would lead us to this practical response of forgiving others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.